Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Teddy Cruz and Chris Desser. Welcome to the New School. I'm Chris Desser. My work in the world primarily has to do with preserving the environment and a democratic society because I think that this is the context which we need in order to live our deepest, fullest lives. Today, I'm going to have the opportunity to talk with Teddy Cruz, who's an architect working in San Diego and Tijuana, particularly around border issues that arise there, and an associate professor in public culture and urbanism at UC San Diego. And he's a particularly apt person for us to be talking to in these series of Commonweal New School Conversations, (laughs) because we're, we're looking to develop the skills and the ideas that are necessary to create the world that we want to be living in. And Teddy's work embodies that and continues to unfold in incredibly fascinating ways. I'm really delighted that we have a a chance to talk today. Um, Teddy, a lot of architecture now is about putting a place on the map. Uh, Frank Geary's art museum at Bilbao, um, the Zaha Hadid's uh, architecture, the design of the Art Museum in Cincinnati are examples of that. But your architecture seems to me to do just the opposite. It gives primacy to the pre-existence of place and the preservation of topography and the terrain. How did this become your direction at this time? Uh, Yes, uh, it's interesting to imagine that uh, many of the efforts, I guess, of uh, that you're mentioning in terms of these architects uh, putting these places in the map uh, would would uh, encompass, I guess, uh, the understanding of the idiosyncrasies and the particularities of those places. In reality, uh, in fact, if you really think of the work of Frank Gehry in uh, late 70s and 80s, uh, it really responded to again, the very particular qualities of Los Angeles and its uh, vernacular, in a sense. And it's interesting that that really opened up this whole somehow postmodern, as it has been loosely called, idea that architecture, uh, once uh, that had become already a kind of international style, would then now be preoccupied in those days, again, uh, in understanding the cultural and social idiosyncrasies of place. Unfortunately, a lot of those... uh, uh, Unfortunately, a lot of those uh, uh, works uh, now have become once more a kind of international style that really begins to homogenize uh, once more in terms of deploying the same style, the same kind of uh, you know character uh, all over the world. So there is a, uh, first of all, there is a kind of uh, irony that that comes up in in in, in this, and, and just uh, that's what your question made me think of initially, is that uh, again the work of these architects while placing this. Uh, cities in the map in terms of the kind of tourist industry and other kinds of uh, global uh, networks, they are really tending to, again, create another international style of uh, homogenization and um, transforming architecture into just another commodity. Now, that has been primarily the the satisfaction that I've uh, had in terms of how uh, my own field of architecture and urbanism has uh, increasingly been... Uh, creating a kind of alliance or a kind of, um, how would I call it, uh, a, 
ultimately working uh, directly with the logics of economic development worldwide with a high-end kind of um, uh, sort of urban large-scale uh, projects of gentrification and so on. I think the architecture profession has been so much now par a participant in that uh, homogenization that we need to search for new attitudes uh, that really can, again, uh, allow us to explore uh, the, the particularities of place, the kind of in, the, the intensity and the kind of drama that is only found in, in particular locales. So I feel that uh, at some point in my development, uh, uh, again, growing uh, dissatisfied with uh, the, the state of affairs, I guess, of, of my own profession, I think that I decided to really uh, focus my work in understanding the problematics and the conditions of a very particular territory, and, and, and I'm, I guess I'm fortunate that this is not any uh, sort of uh, territory. This is a very intensive uh, crossroads, which is the border between Tijuana and San Diego, and in a larger scale, I always see it as a border between the hemispheres, I mean, the, between Latin America and the United States. How so, did you, how did you yes. come to be working directly in that place and also so directly with people who are living there, rather than taking a monumental approach to architecture, most of your work, it seems to me, has to do with creating uh, livable, interesting, public space-oriented residential areas. Yes. Uh, I guess that, that also helps me to, to maybe elaborate a little more on this issue of how uh, architecture in general and the big names of architecture and and uh, sort of the, the glamour of architecture, the architecture profession has again, as I was trying to maybe think of the word, um, become a kind of an accomplice uh, somehow of this increasing uh, neoliberalist economic uh, global policies, again, of privatization, uh, of high-end, very large development, so on. What has occurred is that architects are not, uh, in general, in general, not participating of the social, political, and economic processes that can give us alternatives to that kind of development in terms of scale, in terms of the demographics. We are servicing just one particular audience, uh, one particular economy, one particular scale, and ultimately a kind of particular politics. So I think that, in essence, uh, part of my question is how does an architecture refer to more, uh, opens itself to a diversity uh, you know, of, of publics or whether it could emerge out of really engaging a very particular demographic, in this case, the scale of the neighborhood, for example. So, um, on, a, again, in essence, what I'm trying to say is that uh, my field of architecture and urbanism, in a sense, you don't, uh, it has really, uh, um, it has not really produced enough critical voices that can counter some of the particular trends that are defining our city or the, the way we make city. So I decided at some point that it was important to really uh, engage uh, head on, uh, again, the politics of land use and the, even the economics of development to really understand what, uh, what are the lending structures, what are the political frameworks that are producing the architecture that we see uh, in, you know, more and more in our cities. Um, in, in order to do that, I decided that the, the scale that I wanted to really uh, address was not only the border as a territory, let's say as a region, uh, because of the, uh, we can talk more about it in, in, in later in the conversation, but uh, the conditions that define this border are very in, are amazing uh, from the social, the political, and the economic, uh, ultimately the cultural. 
But I decided that the site of investigation was going to be, uh, the, in this case, a neighborhood, and it's a border neighborhood that I've been working uh, with in the last six years in relationship to uh, amazingly progressive, non-profit, uh, community-based organization that really has, uh, in the last years, been the main community organizing agency in this neighborhood. So to, to, to really work uh, in, inside a very particular, I guess, set of issues that are only found in, in, in this case, in this neighborhood, and from that understanding begin to formulate a very different process of intervention. Maybe you could talk specifically about Casa Familiar, is that what you are referring to? Yes. So I think that um, I'd like to know more about the specifics of that, how you came to be working there, the parties who were, were engaged in the collaboration, the aesthetic decisions that got made, the fascinating reuse, to me, fascinating reuse of, of even things like houses that were sort of the detritus of San Diego that became uh, treasures in Tijuana. Yes, uh, that's a huge, of course, it's a huge topic, and hopefully I can, uh, you know, uh, summarize it in, in, a, in a way that, that makes sense, uh, because, of course, that's a result of all the research that has gone on in the last years uh, in terms of our work here. And, by the way, I should say that part of the tragedy, in, in a way, of our, our, our um, fragmented ways of thinking, I mean, I'm already putting it in the context of your efforts, in thinking of a more integrative, uh, you know, uh, way of uh, constructing a kind of consciousness, uh, I think that a, a lot of what we are searching for in our time, which is really a result of uh, years of uh, institutional atrophy in, in the way of thinking, is that we are all trying to, again, reunite or kind of uh, reintegrate what has been separated. And, and I think that in, in, in my field, again, um, architecture, urbanism, landscape, ecology, are conditions that continue to be completely fragmented and understood in a fragmented way, and not only that, but the way that our, uh, the, the field of architecture has been completely um, away from the, from the realities, let's say, the socio-political realities that construct the territory. And we have continued to inhabit this sort of ivory tower, you know, the architecture as a kind of monument, architecture as a kind of protagonist, as an object but not really as a facilitator of um, relationships and, and so on. So anyway, but uh, uh, sorry, uh, I can maybe then tell you a bit more about Casa Familiar and the, the way this developed. Well, at, please, please, and just apropos of what you were just saying, it strikes me that you are putting architecture back into the hands of the people who are going to actually live and use the structures that are going to be created, as opposed to many steps removed developers of tract housing or... Uh, or, or, or public monuments, and you, you're like down on the ground working with people, and uh, and in a I'm sure very complex way. People have different different desires, no matter how uh, how, how reunited they may be. So um, it would be wonderful to hear about who came together, how they came together, and right. and the design. And, and in reality, again, is not to say we still speaking in, in the more broader kind of philosophical scale, uh, is not to say, well, uh, to hopefully not use the same rhetoric that also uh, at some point did not work. I'm talking about uh, a lot of efforts that have uh, attempted to put, let's say, as you said, an architecture in the hands of people. I mean, that uh, while that might characterize what, what our desire is, I think more than anything, 
is imagining that by listening closely to the the kind of uh, sociopolitical conditions that are very real on the ground from the bottom up uh, could allow a more experimental architecture also to emerge. Uh, so it's not necessarily only putting architecture in the hands of people, but really understanding uh, or problematizing the conversation between those people and the field of architecture so that there is a more, uh, you know, kind of a mutual, as I many, many, many times say, contamination, you know. Or, or, uh, in, in other words, that, uh, in, that, that the effort is really to understand a, a certain sort of set of uh, dynamics or relationships that already are being constructed informally by people in many of these uh, environments or these neighborhoods. And from the, the kind of the understanding of those dynamics and the way people uh, encroach into the public uh, right-of-way, into alleys, into leftover spaces, in the way they collaborate, in the way they transgress property line in order to... Uh, two owners uh, share resources. A lot of in very interesting organizational, spatially and socially conditions can maybe inspire architects to really think differently about the tectonics, not only of architecture, but about the programs and the ultimately economic systems, uh, support systems, uh, social and economic support systems that can allow us to intervene differently. So. It's a more complicated notion. It's not only to put architecture in the hands of people, which is a rhetoric that really we have inherited from other past efforts. I think there is now a bit more sophistication, if I can call it that, in the way that many of these nonprofits are also engaging informational technologies, uh, uh, even organizational uh, uh, processes that are very interesting. So, well, I think that um, yeah, I, the this kind of corrective of hands and putting it in the hands of people is very wonderful because I think you're right. It kind of is a throwback to another time. And and one of the things that's so interesting to me about what you're doing in some of the projects is is understanding the microeconomics that get developed at the neighborhood level and how architecture, the kind of architecture that that is uh, designed for neighborhoods, has a great deal to do with with the economic success of such a neighborhood. Yeah. And I, I think that that goes a little bit to these interesting transgressions that, that you were talking about. Yes, yeah, so in essence, it's really very much that. It's how, instead of continuing to perpetuate this top-down idea of architecture and urbanism that benefits just particular scales of economy, social composition, and so on, can we insert into the mix can, uh, these uh, informal uh, attitudes, these informal economies, these microeconomics, or these organizational, uh, again, collaborative efforts, can we insert into that, uh, into this uh, more institutional process, the, 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 the relevancy, I mean, the kind of uh, amazing, uh, again, from uh, bottom-up dynamics that are also shaping more and more our neighborhoods. It's very much as simple as that. Um, anyway, but uh, how do we negotiate or mediate between the large and the small, between the formal and the informal, you know, between the the planned and the unplanned, a lot of that, I think, is part of the conversation here. But uh, should I maybe address the issue of this, uh, uh, how Casa Familiar, uh, because there is a, a, an issue, uh, well, how Casa Familiar came into the, or I, I came into the story of Casa Familiar more than anything, because there is an issue of scales that is very interesting here. I think that a lot of people, and this is part of, I guess, what you've been doing in terms of this uh, 
uh, more kind of, I don't have to call it holistic or integrative, uh, you know, process uh, in, in, in making uh, a variety of fields that are so specialized, you know, come together in the, into the conversation because as, after all, I think we are all searching for the same thing. Uh, it has to do with, the, 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 again, the reconnection uh, or renegotiation of scales, I think, from the global to the regional to the local, etc. And I think that uh, a lot of the work that really uh, has inspired me very much uh, in, in understanding the city that I live in, this neighborhood that I, I've gotten to know through the voice and the actions of these amazing people that... Uh, um, Form Casa Familiar and that are activists in this neighborhood and so on, uh, really uh, uh, is a way of understanding uh, global dynamics as well. You know, this correspondence between the local and the global, and then from the global to the local. Uh, in reality, uh, one first issue is to imagine that architectural practice can be redefined by understanding the nature of conflict. So to understand conflict itself as a kind of device to redefine a way of intervention, a way of intervening, a way of shaping a practice. I'm saying this because, um, of course, the border between San Diego and Tijuana is uh, the most contested border in the world at this moment, particularly in the current uh, political climate. is the busiest border in the world. Again, 60 million people cross it uh, annually. Uh, and furthermore, uh, uh, within this context, uh, we can imagine, and many times I say this uh, to people in order to create a mental picture that is very quick and, and efficient, uh, there is no other place in the world where you find some of the most expensive real estate as the one found in San Diego's North County, uh, like in Rancho Santa Fe, for example, barely 20 minutes away from some of the poorest settlements in Latin America. So, again, the idea that this uh, radical division of the city between enclaves of mega wealth surrounded by uh, circles of poverty is more and more defining our city, I think, uh, from Dubai all the way to Baja California and the way that it's being privatized at this moment. So, uh, furthermore, there is this idea of collision or conflict that we tend to ignore. Uh, uh, this region, if we were to cut an 80-linear-mile section through San Diego, Tijuana, uh, we would find compressed into that section some of the most important and relevant issues in, in, in urbanism in our time. I'm talking about the politics of labor, of immigration or migration, uh, the uh, politics of anti-terrorism as they fuse now with an anti-immigration, anti-labor agenda of NIMBYism and so on. The, again, the struggles between the formal and the informal, uh, between the wealthy enclaves and the poor uh, service sector, uh, uh, again, um, settlements. And so, uh, again, we find, I find, I have throughout the, the last years, I found in this cross-section or this relationship between Tijuana and San Diego, again, the most important issues uh, that are really finding the way we think about cities. Now, at one point, I... Um, I took this uh, uh, border, the, the border of San Diego and Tijuana, uh, which is a line, let's say, and I uh, gave myself an exercise, a, a kind of intuitive uh, exercise of tra uh, tracing an imaginary line across the whole world, uh, extending the border between Tijuana and San Diego across a world atlas and it was very interesting what emerged, uh, something that I ended up calling a political equator, 
which I imagine you read in the piece, but uh, I wanted to, rem uh, again, make it part of this conversation because I wanted to, again, make this relationship between the world and the little neighborhood that I'm working with. Um, so as I extended this imaginary line or this political equator, that I, as I ended up calling it, it was interesting to, to see how it began to intersect other sites of conflict around the world. So it intersected the, uh, the, the Strait of uh, Gibraltar or the Gibraltar Strait uh, at Ceuta, which is the most intensive uh, border uh, separating North Africa from Europe, which is the main funnel of migration from North Africa into Europe. It intersected further even the Palestinian-Israeli border, and it went all the way to the other side of the world uh, to intersect the dramatic uh, transformation of the Chinese metropolis also out of, uh, again, uh, urbanities of labor and surveillance and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that this political equator gave me a sense that around the world, and coincidentally, I mean, this is a band across the world that maybe uh, 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 goes from the, 20, um, from the 28 to the 32 degree, degrees north parallel. It's a band of a series of sites of conflict, border checkpoints and geographies of conflict, that, that really are, uh, uh, that could serve as a laboratory to understand how the contemporary city is developing. So anyway, from the political equator or from this global border, then I go back to the border neighborhood. And that has been very much my, my topic. I mean, the idea that by understanding now the, 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 the conditions of a very specific neighborhood, which is located at the border, we then can maybe unearth or reveal a, a, a a variety of conditions that really uh, that can allow us to meditate or to really think about the, the, the shifting dynamics everywhere in the world. I should say, and sorry, I'm taking too long in answering this no, question. No, no, it's wonderful. Uh, Although, uh, 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 given that 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 now uh, the Tijuana San Diego border is um, is your laboratory, basically, how have you been addressing the issues there? Sorry, can you repeat that again? The first part of the question. Well, uh, it would seem to me that. After talking about this political equator, which is an incredible concept, um, that along that band you are using Tijuana and San Diego okay. as the laboratory. Yes, and, and and one final point in that context, sorry, is that uh, across that political equator, okay, and that this global border. Let's imagine this is sort of this image of this very dramatic global border. Um, I begin to understand, and this is something that has been recently published a lot, uh, which is very interesting, uh, um, that along this global border is where uh, uh, some of the most uh, sort of contested or, or um, dramatic sociopolitical dynamics are at play. I've been seeing it in the in a way of two-way journeys or, or, or cross-hemispheric kind of journeys. Reciprocity. Not, not reciprocity. Well, no. Basically, this is, uh, um, in reality, to tell the whole story, is that once I, I, I actually uh, came to terms with this idea of this political equator, that uh, regardless of the whole rhetoric of globalization and how borders are being demolished and how these sort of relationships globally are being shaped, shaping a very different economic uh, process and so on, that, that, that traditionally, recently has demolished the, the power of the political, um, the political power of the nation state. Uh, sorry, I just that there is a lot of noise behind behind, behind me. I cannot. Uh, uh, the, what I'm 
trying to say that regardless of this rhetoric, uh, in a post-9-11 world, the political power of the nation states begins to again be demarcated. In other words, borders are stronger than ever at this moment. So for me, this idea of the political equator, again, brings the idea that regardless our aspirations for a world made of uh, transnational relationships and, and borderless geographies, uh, the world is divided between the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere, between uh, the poor economies of the uh, uh, underdeveloped world or the developing world and the strong economies of Europe and the United States and Canada particularly. So uh, the political equator diagram that emerged from this exercise coincidentally uh, intersected the division of the world's cartography by the Pentagon's new map. I don't know if there is a well, book, the no, book called the Pentagon's that. new map where the world is not is divided again. What what used to be the division between the third and the first worlds now is conceptualized as the division between the non-integrating gap, as all of those dysfunctional countries are called, particularly in the southern hemisphere, versus the functioning core, which is where again the strongest economy economies of the world in the in Europe and the United States uh, and Canada. What emerged from that is that uh, basically uh, I begin to notice these crossings acro uh, along this border, uh, global border. From the non-integrating gap, an unprecedented flow of migration of people going, again, from many of these countries in Latin America, Asia, and Africa to settle, uh, uh, crossing this global border in order to settle in Europe and the United States. And I'm talking again about the politics of labor and migration in our time. Yeah. Some unprecedented. Uh, somewhere there was an article where they talked about that if this uh, flow of migration uh, was to be consolidated into a country, it would be a migrant nation made of 200,000 people. Um, now, these people settle in these countries as they do in the United States. Again, I'm mentioning this because this is what will serve me to tell you what I began to discover at the local level and the role of migration or, or immigration in reshaping the American city or the American neighborhood. So when they settle in these countries, they generate informal densities, informal economies, again, microeconomics that are off the radar, that are not understood by or recognized by the official systems. The amount of money these people generate is sent back to their countries of origin, origin in, the in the shape of remittances, or as I call them, informal subsidies. And probably you've been also reading about this recently. Uh, in, in, I think it amounts to uh, $200 billion uh, annually. So in Mexico alone, in other words, immigrants from Mexico who work illegally and legally, I guess I could say, in the United States, send back uh, $20 billion to Mexico, to, to, to the villages of, uh, of, of origin. So the impact of this, again, double journey of migrants going north and then uh, informal subsidies going south, plus the fact that now the redistribution of centers of production out of the politics of outsourcing are now uh, prompting multinationals to search, I mean, beginning in the, no in the, in the functioning core, Right, the main centers of economic power, to search for the cheap labor markets of India uh, and Latin America. Okay, so now this is a, a kind of in reverse. Migrants come to search for a strong dollars and you know and euros, and then factories are searching for cheap labor. So let's speak.
big then that at this global level or scale, these politics of labor, of surveillance, of migration, of anti-terrorism, of security, and so on, are now brought to the specific territory where I live, which is really the border between Tijuana and San Diego. And so uh, uh, here those conditions are reproduced in a very dramatic way. And um, so this is where Casa Familiar comes to play, because the investigation, uh, our investigation of research in San Diego has to do not only with understanding uh, this geography of conflict at a local level, what does it do to the geography, what does it do to the topography and to the kind of social political construct. Of course, uh, in the context of this image, the border between Tijuana and San Diego is the ultimate emblematic image of a discriminating planning idea, right? The separation of uses, the separation of um, uh, sort of communities, the division of the territory into compartmentalized zones. And this is what really, uh, many times I think of it when I think of San Diego, I, I, I say to many people here, while the border exists in its own place between San Diego and Tijuana, that border is invisibly repro reproduced uh, in the rest of San Diego in the way that we have subdivided our cities out of uh, narrow-minded agencies and institutions uh, and so on. Anyway, but the point is that I began to notice then that uh, the, my, uh, the force of immigration begins to transform the very nature of the American city or the neighborhood in this case. I began to notice that at this moment, again, uh, unprecedented redevelopment efforts are really transforming every downtown in our cities in, in, in the United States out of an incredibly wealthy project of uh, economic power uh, made of uh, luxury condos uh, designed by the best architects in the world, again, uh, accomplices in this sort of uh, relentless, uh, powerful gentrif gentrifying or you know, process of gentrification, I began to notice that as downtown is redeveloped with such a scale, uh, displacing, again, people, uh, uh, I begin to notice that the, that suburbia is also being uh, injected with huge infrastructure of freeways and the kind of expansion of this uh, unstoppable sprawl and so on, also very wealthy in nature. What I began to discover at some point is that the place that is being ignored by our institutions and ultimately by our, uh, my, my field of architecture and urbanism is the space in between those two. Uh, which is a mid-city, or basically the first ring of suburbanization after, you know, I guess in the post-war years, the first ring of suburbanization outside, outside downtown. I'm talking about the older neighborhoods in San Diego, which would be the same in many other cities. Uh, San Isidro, which is a place where I work, is one of those places. Uh, there are other neighborhoods such as City Heights and uh, uh, North Park and so on. What has happened is that... Uh, that first ring of suburbanization, let's say, let's imagine it that after the war looked like a levy town type of environment, right, of uh, uh, cookie-cutter housing, uh, homogeneity, and so on, uh, subdivisions really very much similar to the ones that we are seeing now, except that they were smaller. Uh, so these small bungalows uh, and these subdivisions during the last 30, 40 years have completely transformed have completely changed out, in fact, of 
uh, what I call socioeconomic contingencies, in other words. Immigrants, in fact, settling in these neighborhoods because they are not able to afford the wealthy downtown or the wealthy periphery, this mid-city has become the place where immigrants settle from many, many places from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And in the last 30, 40 years, have completely transformed this environment out of informal additions to houses that are illegal, small businesses that emerge in garages or other, you know, suggesting, in fact, even if for many people these informal um, alterations uh, seem awkward and ugly, they suggest a more sustainable uh, uh, land use condition. Now, all of those transformations are called non-conforming. They are, they are illegal. My work has w focused on the possibility that those illegal, non-conforming, informal economies and uses and densities could shape a very different policy, you know, to transform uh, or to suggest a very different idea of land use. What I discovered also is that within these environments that really have been completely pixelated with uh, social and economic, again, dynamics, and, and ultimately very temporal in a way, because they continue to mutate out of uh, very light additions and, and so on, you know, transformations, there are agencies that have been working on the ground, on the trenches, or organizing these people, servicing these people with uh, health care, with economic assistance, and so on. And these so you're are, speaking of, of NGOs, right? Or are you yes. Speaking, yeah. Right. And these are the agencies that 30 years ago or 25 years ago uh, began as social service providers, right? Uh, there are examples of them all over the world, all over the, all over the United States. And by the way, all of them led by very, very progressive women, and this is another aspect that could be really interesting for you know, somebody to research. Um, and, and so what is interesting, again, is that those agencies in many places, maybe not too many, but there are some very interesting cases, now out of conditions of emergency, as housing subsidies are slashed and eliminated by our current, uh, you know, uh, mentality in terms of uh, this very conservative government uh, that does not care at all, at all about the social uh, program in the city or public institution. These agencies ha are becoming more and more developers of their own housing stock. They are really progressing in the way they are trying to figure out how to buy land, how to then produce projects that are more respectful and more... Uh, um, you know, that respond to these dynamics in a, in a more intelligent way, more intelligent than the land use recipes that have been abstractly created in the planner's table in downtown, right. and so on. So that's the case of Casa Familiar. I discovered Casa Familiar as one of those agencies and began to work with them in a very particular neighborhood that reproduced those dynamics once more. And, and so that became the laboratory. And at some point, I suggested through a couple of texts that the, 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 the site of experimentation for the 21st century would not be the city, but the neighborhood. I'm saying this because uh, perennially for the avant-garde in urbanism and architecture, the city has become the laboratory. But at this moment, the city is just defined by a huge project of homogenization and hyper-style produced by the main voices of architecture and not really uh, the most experimental aspects in terms of organizing, in terms of uh, spatial tactics, are really being produced informally by these agencies. So for me, it was a way of learning uh, from this uh, environment, 
and from the legacy and the kind of histories that these people were producing. Now, the idea or the challenge for me was, can these agendas, can these social and political agendas that these nonprofits battling and, and you know working on the trenches, uh, can they be framed by architecture? Can they be framed and supported by spatial, uh, you know, uh, and 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 uh, uh, tectonic again uh, projects? So, so just, that, that, that's what happened at that So point. just briefly, what is the what's the mission of Casa Familiar that you then? were manifesting or continuing to try to manifest in the physical world. It was an agency that was helping uh, uh, poor, poor women and children. I, I, I just not entirely clear as an NGO yes. what, its, um, what its mission is. Yes, that was, that was the case. They were giving assistance to immigrants in terms of giving information, uh, in terms of providing health services, um, in terms of providing education to, to uh, youth groups, uh, uh, so a variety of social services. And then how did they and you become involved in actually building in neighborhoods? Because uh, more and more they were realizing that their neighborhood, and, and, and it is very poignant that this is not any neighborhood, this is the last neighborhood against, oh, uh, the last neighborhood in, in, in the United States against Tijuana, right? This is a border neighborhood. So the more, uh, 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 again, discriminating and um, policies towards the border begin to emerge uh, in the last years. Uh, um, the, the, the project right now here at the border is really focusing on the transformation of the border ecology by Homeland Security. The more these conditions were happening, the more this neighborhood was being ignored by, you know, by, by the institutions of planning and so on. So at some point, they decided that they were going to take things on their own hands. The idea that the neighborhood could become a site of exception so that because there is being ignored, we can create our own policies uh, and our own economic processes was opened up, uh, you know, its own idea of density and mixed use, etc. Um, was really uh, so. So more and more, they begin to realize they need to really be the ones calling the shots, basically. And uh, they began to buy land. So they bought a couple of parcels on which they wanted to build uh, 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 pilot projects that could be examples uh, to advance very different ideas of density and of mixed use. By the way, after understanding many of these neighborhoods, one very particular and important condition that comes out of that, for me, uh, needs to be mentioned here, and is that many of our institutions of planning and governance, academia and development, continue to think of density in a very sort of narrow-minded way. This is a very important aspect. Density is e equals amount of people per acre or amount of units per acre. What we begin to discuss in San Isidro with Casa Familiar is that maybe density, maybe we should begin there. We should begin by transforming or challenging our cliches uh, in the way that we document these dynamics, for example, so that we can maybe begin to imagine that density could be measured by an amount of social interactions per acre. That's wonderful. And that could begin to suggest a very different idea because density is not a, a equated now to bulk, size, an amount of units packed into you know one particular area, but that it would have to uh, consider 
the socioeconomic uh, exchanges and dynamics uh, as people collaborate to create a, 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 you know, a condition of social sustainability. Do you see what I mean? So yes. That, oh, it's that, wonderful. The, that, the that, SAA quotient, yes. social actions per acre. That's great. So that's what, what uh, it, it was part of this conversation that somehow Casa Familiar throughout the last years was really developing uh, internally. And then I ended up meeting Andrea Scorepa, who is a, this very amazing woman who leads uh, Casa Familiar. And we met seven years ago uh, in Tijuana at a, at a gathering. And then she begins to tell me her kind of wishes. And I was coming back from Harvard uh, uh, from studying there. And I was coming to San Diego with the idea that I just didn't want to spend the rest of my time as an architect designing pretty boutiques and and nice house additions. Uh, uh, I, I really wanted to enter the politics of this sort of development and further into the border. So it was a perfect marriage in a way. And I, you know, we 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 we, be, we became partners and and we began to work on this project. And and so they, uh, Casa Familiar, began to organize uh, workshops. Uh, 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 we uh, organized a community to to convey information about these issues of urbanism, of architecture, to suggest that as the community was going to begin, and in this case, basically Casa Familiar begins to organize the neighborhood, right, in a way that uh, communication is the first project, right, because yeah. uh, that's, this is another aspect that has been somehow misunderstood, and a lot of people, particularly in my field, are mistrustful, or how do you say that, it does not trust uh, the workshop process? No, it's because, very long. <laughs> because traditionally, architects that are involved in community design, they have the idea that they just come to the community or the neighborhood and they just ask the questions or, you know, what do you want? And the, the community tells them what they want, and then the architects go and draw what they want, what this community wants. I think that we wanted to really make it more complex. Uh, we wanted to push the community to, to help us to understand what density meant, what mixed use meant, what the informal dynamics w that were at play that probably they were not thinking about how they would play a role and all that. I'm saying this because if I, in the beginning when we engaged some of these early workshops, if, when we asked the community what they wanted, many people said a, a Costco. And, 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 of course, a Starbucks, and, 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 and probably when it came to architecture, it really was a kind of a Mexican or a Spanish colonial hacienda-looking building that would define the style of this neighborhood. So what I, this is a very important issue that we haven't really talked about, right. is that style, single-handedly, has determined uh, the, 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 the conversation or the debate. Uh, in terms of uh, redevelopment or revitalization, how everybody did you, focused How did you open it up? Yes? How did you open it up? Uh, how did you open the community up to another idea? Well, <clears throat> by uh, by uh, inventing, in fact, uh, uh, exercises, games, uh, devices that could generate a more complicated conversation. And maybe I can give you one that was very fundamental. I think at some point we had a workshop that would have to deal with density. And again, what I'm trying to say in general, Chris, is that uh, one first site of intervention not only was the neighborhood and these dynamics, but really the conversation with people themselves. I mean, that we, we challenge each other to demolish the cliches that have been perpetuated. I mean, how do we understand density and so on? And even how do we understand the character of a neighborhood, right? Because since this was a Hispanic neighborhood, now a lot of people wanted it to look Hispanic or to look uh, 
in a particular way. And instead of understanding, uh, again, what people were already producing in terms of their uh, um, uh, entrepreneurial at times practices, in terms of their uh, willingness to collaborate, uh, willingness to, to uh, blur property line, a lot of those conditions that were more about boundaries, limits, uh, relationships, beyond style. And this is, this is a very important aspect. So we, it was a very difficult task because we didn't want to seem as the architects that come with the, re, the, the answers, right? Right. But what we needed to do it was really to suggest that there were other issues that we were not considering. And so, for example, for the density workshop, what we did was that we uh, created a series of models that we brought, physical models that we brought to the workshop, and we separated in table, tables. Um, and um, uh, in my table, there were like eight people, and basically the, mo- the model was really the model of a block defined by what is usually in San Diego the case. The minimum parcel size is 5,000 square feet per unit. By the way, that's a very large conversation, this issue of let's begin by challenging the minimum parcel size in our Absolutely. city. Absolutely. I so, used to be a land use lawyer, I know. Yeah, so, okay, so it, that, that already is uh, very fundamental. So we created this block made of 5,000 square feet parcels with a little house in the middle and all this space of setbacks around. And so we put wood blocks. We brought, we brought the, basically the block, the block with the parcels, wood blocks, cars, and trees out of wood. And basically, I asked the people at my table, can you build, can you put in this block so many units of density, like, and and the landscape and the cars together? This is what we would have to do as architects, right? Of course, everybody freaked out. I mean, nobody knew how to really begin to, you know, put uh, wood on the the block. So this lady who, I think uh, she might have been uh, in her late uh, 70s, early 80s, uh, was the first one to step in, and she put one piece of wood in the middle of one parcel, another piece of wood in the middle of another parcel, and, and pretty soon she very much uh, actually reconstructed her own block, right? Wow. Individual houses on individual lots. And I said, well, that's exactly what really, that's our reality. Yeah, what but, exists now. And, and then I said, what would happen if we were to, let's say, for I mean, this is very, very, com- what I'm saying is very commonsensical, but I said, what would happen if we put two houses in a zero setback condition so that maybe there is a garden in between that can be shared by two uh, owners and then there is an access to the back, to the alley or whatever. The point is that we began to talk about these possibilities and this lady ended up filling up the whole block with wood, uh, <laughs> but with the spaces in between and and all of a sudden, she said in Spanish to me, she said, I cannot believe that these houses are selfish. You know, I mean, she said that, I mean, meaning that the houses that she lived in or the house that her neighbor, these houses are selfish. When, yes. she, when she said that, for me, was the most amazing definition yes. of, of, of the poverty of land use in this case, uh, as it ignores uh, social and economic dynamics. So then she uh, went on to, 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 to recollect, to, to, to remember when she lived in Mexico, in Guadalajara, a long, long time ago, and she began to describe to me in, in, in her own words that her memory now of Guadalajara was very different because she lived in the historic center of Guadalajara. She said, now I remember in reality the blocks in, in my neighborhood were not made of individual buildings. It was uh, made of spaces. I mean, she, she really... Uh, click. I mean, she connected to the idea 
that what made the, 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 her blog in Guadalajara interesting was that it was a continuous building, and, 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 but it was mediated by uh, courtyards and, 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 and corridors and so on. So again, that, that's very incredibly tra- traditionalist, nevertheless. And in fact, it really is a grounding for new urbanist ideas, which I tend to disagree with, and we can don't have to talk about it right now. But nevertheless, uh, what I'm, but, but if anything, she began to conceptualize her own block as a different environment, where her neighbor uh, and neighbors or all of the neighbors that occupy that block could collaborate in sharing space, in sharing resources, in, 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 in making the alleys behind part of their own uh, 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 you know, a physical environment and so on. So that for me was fundamental in, sharing, in, in, in redirecting the conversation of what density meant. It's incredible. And, and, you got, and, and how many people were engaged in this, uh, in this collaborative process about? I'm curious how, how many moving parts there were. So well, uh, Casa Familiar does an amazing job at uh, knocking on doors, uh, uh, letting people you know, constantly be informed. Uh, so usually uh, there would be 150 to 200 people. I mean, coming coming to these uh, workshops, and some of them would be about density, some of them would be about economic development, some of them would be about how people want to really begin their own businesses, and who would be interested if given a particular loan could begin, uh, you know, to collaborate and so on. That that really uh, uh, really became um, really the the, the 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 place or the source of information for Casa Familiar. We have only um, only about. Uh, Ten minutes or so left, and um, and I want to ask you questions. I'm sure it could take a very long time to answer, but we'll I have to probably pick it up in another conversation. But first, I guess briefly, where did the funding come from this? That how how much has it cost, if you can say? Where did the funding come? And then also, ultimately, you've actually done construction there, right? People are living in, living and working in this place. Right. Uh, again, it's really well. It's really very difficult to compress the whole process, which has been really arduous and really lengthy. And also, I wish in this case that I could get to the point quicker. You know, this is, I continue to think in a Latin American way. No, you know? no, no. But please, but, I mean, the elaborations and the sort of you know, uh, it, it discursion, discursions are fascinating. So yes. it's not a problem. No. So anyway, the situation uh, is in terms of the funding and all that. Maybe I can just be try to be very punctual and very quickly summarize because that could maybe allow us to get to the to how all of this has resulted in a particular project. Yeah. As well, uh, because basically, uh, out of this information and all of this conversation with the neighborhood, with the people, with Casa Familiar and their own ideas, emerged a, a question, and this is a question that Andreas Corepa gave me at some point. He said, she said. Uh, no matter, uh, you know, it, it, again, you can, I'm hiring you as an architect to come here, design these two prototypes of housing, but she said before you begin to design and, and really think of the aesthetics of these buildings, uh, I want you to design with me a policy and an economic process that ma- will make this building sustainable. And that was an amazing revelation. Again, very common sense, but she said no matter, I mean, no advances in housing design can occur without advances in housing policy. Right. And precisely also in terms of economic structures. What kind of lending, what kind of resources uh, we can produce from the bottom up to create a very different idea of affordability? Because affordability for a lot of us has just become 
cheap stucco boxes with cheap aluminum windows. Units, right, units. Which, which don't last, you know. Right. So we, we have to think differently of affordability, not only because afford, affordable, affordability is an oxymoron for this country or this society that does not invest in public infrastructure and public uh, uh, you know, housing, because uh, otherwise we might be seen that we are becoming communists. Uh, uh, but uh, how do we think differently about affordability uh, so that people themselves are participants and co-owners of these projects? Can the sweat equity be part of this process? Can people already in their work that they do every day in this neighborhood, out of participation in the non-profit, out of uh, um, the fact that in these neighborhoods is where the service sector lives, uh, and, and it's very much about human resourcefulness. In other words, we think of the city and these projects just as economic, uh, the kind of the, 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 the power of, of um, how would I call it, the, the, the economic uh, power, right, of... Um, uh, development, but we never think of how to capitalize on human capacity, right? On the power of uh, uh, people and their own resourcefulness to be part of a kind of economic process. So, anyway, so all of these was we were part of the question. So, the first thing that we did was let's design this micro policy, as we ended up calling it. Let's propose it to the municipality in San Diego. Let's think of how we can have a very different land use and a very different process of participation and collaboration across agencies, and let's imagine that we can collaborate with the bank to think of giving us microloans, and let's think of, let's rethink the whole process. And that was fundamental for me because that's where the most experimental ideas emerged. And this is what I keep saying to other architects and students of mine. We are just focusing on issues of design when in reality we should be designing the issues that can then yield a very different idea of architecture. And so we began with this micro-policy, and basically the micro-policy had five or six steps that were very clear, but very always very difficult to explain. And one first step was that the nonprofit would become a think tank, of course, which, which, which already is. In other words, let's invite the government and the municipality to collaborate with this nonprofit because the most incredible information gathered and researched and documented during the last 30 years is there. Let's capitalize on this learning curve. Let's capitalize on the fact that these nonprofits can be the disseminators of information and organization. So the more immigrants come to the United States, because no matter how high that border wall is, as, much, as long as there is a demand on cheap labor, people will continue to percolate through this border. But as immigrants come here to continue to build what really is ultimately the American dream, because this country is made of immigrants, I think more and more governments have to be decentralized and partnerships have to be created with these agencies. And so the idea was to present the format by which the nonprofit would become a temporary city hall at the scale of the neighborhood, where information would be available for people and where the nonprofit would really orchestrate lending and permit processes collaborate in collaboration with the municipality. So, so the first step, the, the, the non-profit would document, as, as a think tank, would document all the illegal non-conforming additions that are off the radar from the, from the uh, land use maps uh, in the municipality. Uh, so that was a very compelling idea because it was making the illegal somehow legal for a moment, right, as a point of departure. So once we, the, 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 the non-profit would document all these non-conforming additions, we invited the, the, the municipality to be a partner in legitimizing these additions and creating a different density or land use 
condition, allowing two more units on each parcel uh, and allowing some microeconomies or small businesses to be uh, mixed in some areas, etc. So the second role was that the nonprofit would become the facilitator of permits uh, uh, for these, uh, uh, you know, uh, new additions. So not new additions, but that it would be replacing the old additions that were kind of unsafe and maybe ugly or whatever. But the idea was that the nonprofit would invite the owners uh, of these uh, properties. Uh, Chris, are you still there? Yes, yes, Sorry. I am. Although uh, we only have about another minute. <laughs> oh, my God. Let me just uh, yes. clarify. Basically, the idea was to involve people in being micro-developers, in participating, uh, and instead of going to downtown to the municipality, these people would come to the non-profit to uh, facilitate permit processes and that they would promise to be part of the process of construction. So they were becoming developers themselves. The idea that the neighborhood became a developer and not uh, and, 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 and so doing revitalizing it from the bottom up. And finally, the distribution of microcredits so that the breaking of a large loan into small pieces, as long as that was managed by the nonprofit, that could be possible by a bank. Well, I so think that um, what it sounds to me like what you've done, and I would like to have another chance to talk to you about it all, is basically recreated what democracy was supposed to be in the first place, and the notion that people can exercise some self-determination over where they live and how they live is what seems to me to have been a fundamental American value in the first place. So I suppose uh, since we're a country of immigrants, it shouldn't be exactly an irony, and yet it sounds like one, that that's where that kind of democracy is, is being reclaimed. Thank you so much. Um, yes. I, I look forward to continuing this conversation another time. It's just been wonderful. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry it took a, a long time to answer those questions. No, but, no. Uh, you, are, you are actually uh, right. I mean, in essence, it's really the, 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 the transformation of our own institutions, economic, uh, political, as, as a way of really generating new mo modalities of sociability. I mean, that's what we are, we are searching for. Thank you so much. Thank you, and we'll continue. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.